And now, the conclusion of the Crystal Shard, Chapter 31, Victory. The men of Ten Towns, along with their dwarven and barbarian allies, had fought their way from all sides of the wide field and now stood unified before the northern gate of Bryn Shander. And while their army had achieved a singular fighting stance, with all of the once separate groups banding together toward the common goal of survival, Kessel's army had gone down the opposite road. When the goblins had first charged into Icewind Pass, their common purpose was victory for the glory of Akar Kessel. But Kessel was gone, and Chrysal Tirith destroyed, and the cord that held them together, the long-standing bitter enemies, the rival orc and goblin tribes, had begun to unravel. The humans and dwarves looked upon the mass of invaders with returning hope, for on all the outer fringes of the vast force, dark shapes continued to break away and flee from the battlefield and back to the tundra. Still, the defenders of Ten Towns were surrounded on three sides with their backs to Bryn Shander's wall. At this point, the monsters made no move to press the attack, but thousands of goblins held their positions all around the northern fields of the city. Earlier in the battle, when the initial attacks had caught the invaders by surprise, the leaders of the engaged defending forces would have considered such a lull in the fighting disastrous, stealing their momentum and allowing their stunned enemies to regroup into more favorable formations. Now, though, the break came as a twofold blessing. It gave the soldiers a desperately needed rest and let the goblins and orcs fully absorb the beating they had taken. The field on this side of the city was littered with corpses, many more goblin than humans, and the crumbled pile that was Krishal Tirith only heightened the monsters' perceptions of their staggering losses. No giants or ogres remained to bolster their thinning lines, and each passing second saw more of their allies desert the cause. Cassius had time to call all the surviving spokesmen to his side for a brief council. A short distance away, Wolfgar and Revjak were meeting with Fender Mallet, the appointed leader of the dwarven forces, in light of Brunner's disturbing absence. "'Glad we are at your return, mighty Wolfgar,' Fender said. "'Bruder knew you would be back.' Wolfgar looked out over the field, searching for some sign that Bruner was still out there swinging. "'Have you heard any news of Bruner at all?' "'You yourself were the last to see him,' Fender replied grimly. And then they were silent, scanning the field. "'Let me hear again the ring of your axe,' Wolfgar whispered but Bruner could not hear him. Jensen, Cassius asked the spokesman from Cardinable, where are your womenfolk and children? Are they safe? Safe in East Haven, Jensen Brent replied, joined by now by the people of Goodmead and Dugan's Hole. They're well provisioned and watched. If Kessel's wretches make for the town, the people shall know of the danger with ample time left for them to put back out onto Lac Denisher. But how long can they survive on the water? Cassius asked. Jensen Brett shrugged noncommittally. Until the winter falls, I should guess. They shall always have a place to land, though, for the remaining goblins and orcs could not possibly encompass even half of the lake shoreline. Cassius seemed satisfied. He turned to Kemp. Lonelywood. Kemp answered to his unspoken question. And I'll wager that they're better off than we are. They've enough boats and docks to found a city in the middle of Mare Dolden. That's good, Cassius told them. It leaves yet another option open to us. We could perhaps hold our ground here for a while, then retreat back within the walls of the city. 
The goblins and orcs, even with their greater numbers, couldn't hope to conquer us there. The idea seemed to appeal to Jensen Brent, but Kemp scowled. So, our folk may be safe enough, he said. But what of the barbarians? Their women are sturdy and capable of surviving without them, Cassius replied. I care not the least for their foul-smelling women, Kemp blustered, purposefully raising his voice so that Wolfgar and Revjak, holding their own counsel not far away, could hear him. I speak of these wild dogs themselves. Surely you're not going to open the door wide in invitation to them. Proud Wolfgar started toward the spokesman. Cassius turned angrily on Kemp. Stubborn ass, he whispered harshly. Our only hope lies in unity. Our only hope lies in attacking, Kemp retorted. We have them terrified, and you ask us to run and hide? The huge barbarian king stepped up before the two spokesmen, towering above them. Greetings, Cassius of Brinchander, he said politely. I am Wulfgar, son of Bjornagar and leader of the tribes who have come to join in your noble cause. What can your kind possibly know of nobility? Kemp interrupted. Wolfgar ignored him. I have overheard much of your discussion, he continued, unshaken. It is my judgment that your ill-mannered and ungrateful adviser, he paused for control, has proposed the only solution. Cassius, still expecting Wolfgar to be enraged at Kemp's insults, was at first confused. Attack, Wolfgar explained. The goblins are uncertain now of what gains they can hope to make. They wonder why they ever followed the evil wizard to this place of doom. If they are allowed to find their battle lust again, they will prove a more formidable foe. I thank you for your words, barbarian king, Cassus replied. Yet it is my guess that this rabble will not be able to support a siege. They will leave the fields before a week has passed. Perhaps, said Wolfgar. Yet even then your people shall pay dearly. The goblins leaving on their own choice will not return to their caves empty-handed. There are still several unprotected cities that they could strike at on their way out of Icewind Dale. And... Worse yet, they shall not leave with fear in their eyes. Your retreat shall save the lives of some of their men, Cassius, but it will not prevent the future return of your enemies. Then you agree that we should attack? Cassius asked. Our enemies have come to fear us. They look about and see the ruins we have brought down upon them. Fear is a powerful tool, especially against cowardly goblins. Let us complete the rout, as your people did to mine five years ago. Cassius recognized the pain in Wolfgar's eyes as he recalled the incident. And send these foul beasts scurrying back to their mountain homes. Many years shall pass before they venture out to strike at your towns again. Cassius looked upon the young barbarian with profound respect and also deep curiosity. He could hardly believe that these proud tundra warriors, who vividly remembered the slaughter they had suffered at the hands of ten townsmen, 
had come to aid of the fishing communities. My people did indeed rout yours, noble king, brutally. Why then have you come? That is a matter we shall discuss after we have completed our task, Wolfgar answered. Now, let us sing. Let us strike terror into the hearts of our enemies and break them. He turned to Revjak and some of the other leaders. Sing, proud warriors, he commanded. Let the song of Tempos foretell the death of the goblins. A rousing cheer went up throughout the barbarian ranks, and they lifted their voices proudly to their god of war. Cassius noted the immediate effect the song had on the closest monsters. They backed away a step and clutched their weapons tightly. A smile crossed the spokesman's face. He still couldn't understand the barbarian's presence, but explanations would have to wait. "'Join our barbarian allies!' he shouted to his soldiers. "'Today is a day of victory!' The dwarves had taken up the grim war chant of their ancient homeland. The fishermen of ten towns followed the words of the Song of Tempos, tentatively at first, until the foreign inflections and phrases easily rolled from their lips. And then they joined in fully, proclaiming the glory of their individual towns as the barbarians did their tribes— the tempo increased. The volume moved toward a powerful crescendo. The goblins trembled at the growing frenzy of their deadly enemies. The stream of deserters flowing away from the edges of the main gathering grew thicker and thicker. And then, as one killing wave, the human and dwarven allies charged down the hill. Drizzt had been able to scramble far enough away from the southern face to escape the fury of the avalanche, but he still found himself in a dangerous predicament. Kelvin's Karn wasn't a high mountain, but the top third was perpetually covered with deep snow and brutally exposed to the icy wind that gave this land its name. Even worse for the drow, his feet had gotten wet in the melt caused by Krishinavan, and now, as the moisture hardened around the skin to ice, movement through the snow was painful. He resolved to plod on, making for the western face which offered the best protection against the wind. His motions were violent and exaggerated, expending all the energy that he could to keep the circulation flowing through his veins. When he reached the lip of the mountain's peak and started down, he had to move more tentatively, fearing that any sudden jolts would deliver him into the same grim fate that had befallen Akar Kessel. His legs were completely numb now, but he kept them moving, almost having to force his automatic reflexes. But then he slipped. Wolfgar's fierce warriors were the first ones to crash into the goblin's line, hacking and pushing back the first rank of monsters. Neither goblin nor orc dared stand against the mighty king. But in the crowded confusion of the fighting few who could find their way out of his path, one after another they fell to the ground. Fear had only paralyzed the goblins, and their slight hesitation had spelled doom for the first groups to encounter the savage barbarians. Yet the downfall of the army ultimately came from further back in the ranks. The tribes who had not even been involved in the fighting began to ponder the wisdom of continuing this campaign, for they recognized that they'd gained enough of an advantage over their homeland rivals, weakened by heavy losses, to expand their territories back in the spine of the world. Shortly after the second outburst of fighting had begun, the dust cloud of stamping feet once again rose above Icewind Pass as dozens of orc and goblin tribes headed home. 
and the effect of the mass desertions on those goblins who could not easily flee was devastating. Even the most dim-witted goblin understood its people's chance for victory against the stubborn defenders of ten towns lay in the overwhelming weight of their numbers. Aegis Fang thudded repeatedly as Wolfgar, charging in alone, swept a path of devastation before him. Even the men of ten towns shied away from him, unnerved by his savage strength. But his own people looked upon him with awe and tried their best to follow his glorious lead. Wolfgar waded in on a group of orcs. Aegis Fang slammed home on one, killing it and knocking those behind it to the ground. Wolfgar's backswing with the hammer produced the same results on the other flank. In one burst, more than half of the group of orcs were killed or lying stunned. Those remaining had no desire to move in on the mighty human. Glen Sather of Easthaven also waded in on a group of goblins, hoping to incite his people with the same fury as his barbarian counterpart. But Glen Sather wasn't an imposing giant like Wolfgar, and he didn't wield a weapon as mighty as Aegis Fang. His sword cut down the first goblin he encountered, then spun back deftly and felt a second. The spokesman had done well, but one element was missing from his attack, the critical factor that elevated Wolfgar above other men. Glensather had killed two goblins, but he had not caused the chaos in their ranks that he needed to continue. Instead of fleeing, as they did before Wolfgar, the remaining goblins pressed in behind him. Glensather had just come up beside the barbarian king when the cruel tip of a spear dove into his back and tore through, driving out the front of his chest. Witnessing the gruesome spectacle, Wolfgar brought Aegis Fang over the spokesman, driving the head of the spear-wielding goblin down into its chest. Glensather heard the hammer connect behind him and even managed to smile his thanks before he fell dead to the grass. The dwarves worked differently than their allies. Once again, formed into their tight, supportive formation, they mowed down rows of goblins simultaneously. And the fishermen, fighting for the lives of their women and their children, fought and died without fear. In less than an hour, every group of goblins had been smashed. And a half an hour after that, the last of the monsters fell dead to the blood-stained field. Drizzt rode the white wave of falling snow down the side of the mountain. He tumbled helplessly, trying to brace himself whenever he saw the jutting tip of a boulder in his path. As he neared the base of the snow cap, he was thrown clear of the slide and sent bouncing through the gray rocks and boulders, as though the mountain's proud, unconquerable peaks had spit him out like an uninvited guest. His agility and a strong dose of pure luck saved him. When he was at last able to stop his momentum and find a perch, he discovered that his numerous injuries were superficial, a scrape on his knee, a bloodied nose, and a sprained wrist being the worst of them. In retrospect, Driz had to consider the small avalanche a blessing, for he had made swift progress down the mountain, and he wasn't even certain that he could have otherwise escaped Kessel's frosty fate without it. The battle in the south had begun again by this time. Hearing the sounds of the fighting, Drizzt watched curiously as thousands of goblins passed by on the other side of the Dwarven Valley, running up Icewind Pass on the first legs of their long journey home. The drow couldn't be sure of what was happening, though he was familiar with the cowardly reputation of goblins. He didn't give it too much thought, though, for the battle was no longer his main concern. His vision followed a narrow path to the mound of broken black stonework that had been Krishal Tirith. He finished his descent from Kelvin's Karn and headed down Bremen's run toward the rubble. He had to find out if Regis or Gwenhyver had escaped.
victory. It seemed a small comfort to Cassius, Kemp, and Jensen Brent as they looked around at the carnage on the scarred field. There were only three spokesmen to have survived the struggle. Seven others had been cut down. We have won, Cassius declared grimly. He watched helplessly as more soldiers fell dead, men who had suffered mortal wounds earlier in the battle but had refused to fall down and die until they'd seen it through. More than half of all the men of Ten Towns lay dead, and many more would die later, for nearly half of those still alive had been grievously wounded. Four towns had been burned to the ground, and another one looted and torn apart by occupying goblins. They had paid a terrible price for their victory. The barbarians, too, had been decimated. Mostly young and inexperienced, they'd fought with the tenacity of their breeding and died accepting their fate as a glorious ending to their life's tale. Only the dwarves, disciplined by many battles, had come through relatively unscathed. Several had been slain, a few others wounded, but most were all too ready to take up the fight again, if only they could have found more goblins to bash. Their one great lament, though, was that Bruner was missing. Go to your people, Cassius told his fellow spokesman. Then return this evening to council. Kemp shall speak for all the people of the four towns of Merdolden. Jensen Brent for the people of the other lakes. We will have to decide, and little time to do it, Jensen Brent said. Winter is fast approaching. We shall survive, Kemp declared with his characteristic defiance. But then he was aware of the sullen looks his peers had cast upon him, and he conceded a bit of his realism. Though it will be a bitter struggle. So it shall be for my people, said another voice. The three spokesmen turned to see the giant Wolfgar striding out from the dusty, surrealistic scene of carnage. The barbarian was caked in dirt and spattered with the blood of his enemies, but he looked every bit the noble king. I request an invitation to your council, Cassius. There is much that our people can offer to each other in this harsh time. Kemp growled. If we need beasts of burden, we'll buy oxen. Cassius shot Kemp a dangerous look and addressed his unexpected ally. You may indeed join the council, Wolfgar, son of Bjornigar. For your aid this day, my people owe you much. Again, I ask you, why did you come? For the second time that day, Wolfgar ignored Kemp's insults. To repay a debt he replied to Cassius. And perhaps to better the lives of both our peoples. By killing goblins? Jensen Brent asked, suspecting that the barbarian had more in mind. A beginning, Wolfgar answered. Yet there is much more that we may accomplish. My people know the tundra even better than the yetis. We understand its ways and know how to survive. Your people would benefit from our friendship, especially in the hard times that lay before you. Bah! Kemp snorted, but Cassius silenced him. The spokesman from Bryn Chander was intrigued by the possibilities. And what would your people gain from such a union? A connection, Wolfgar answered. A link to a world of luxuries that we have never known— the tribes hold a dragon's treasure in their hands, but gold and jewels do not provide warmth on a winter night, nor food when game is scarce. 
Your people have much rebuilding to do. My people have wealth to assist in this task. In return, ten towns will deliver my people into a better life. Cassius and Jensen Brent nodded approvingly as Wolfgar laid out his plan. Finally, and perhaps most important, the barbarian concluded, is the fact that we need each other for the present at least. Both our peoples have been weakened and are vulnerable to the dangers of the land. Together, our remaining strength would see us through the winter. You intrigue and surprise me, Cassius said. Attend the council, then, with my personal welcome, and let us put in motion a plan that will benefit all who survived the struggle against Akar Kessel. As Cassius turned, Wolfgar grabbed Kemp's shirt with one of his huge hands and easily hoisted the spokesman from Targos off the ground. Kemp swatted at the muscled forearm, but realized that he had no chance of breaking the barbarian's iron grip. Wolfgar glared at him dangerously. For now, he said, I am responsible for all my people. Thus have I disregarded your insults. But when the day comes that I am no longer king, you would do well to cross my path no more. With a flick of his wrist, he tossed the spokesman to the ground. Kemp, too intimidated by the present to be angry or embarrassed, sat where he landed and did not respond. Cassius and Brent nudged each other and shared a low chuckle. It lasted only until they saw the girl approaching, her arm in a bloody sling and her face and auburn hair caked with layers of dust. Wolfgar saw her too, and the sight of her wounds pained him more than he never knew it would. Catabri! he cried, rushing to her. She calmed him with an outstretched palm. I am not badly injured, she assured Wolfgar stoically, though it was obvious to the barbarian that she had been sorely injured. Though I dare not think what would have befallen me if Brunner had not arrived. You have seen Brunner? In the tunnels, Caterbury explained. Some orcs found their way in. Perhaps I should have collapsed the tunnel. Yet there weren't many, and I could hear that the dwarves were doing well on the field above. Brunner came down then, but there were more orcs at his back. A support beam collapsed. I think Brunner cut it out, and there was too much dust and confusion. And Brunner? Wolfgar asked anxiously. Caterbury looked back across the field. Out there, he has asked for you. By the time Drizzt reached the rubble that had been Krishal Tirith, the battle was over. The sights and sounds of the horrible aftermath pressed in all about him, but his goal remained unchanged. He started up the side of the broken stones. In truth, the drow thought himself a fool for following such a hopeless cause. Even if Regis and Gwenhever hadn't gotten out of the tower, how could he possibly hope to find them? He pressed on stubbornly refusing to give in to the inescapable logic that scolded him. This was where he differed from his people. This was what had driven him, finally, from the unbroken darkness of their vast cities. Drizduarden allowed himself to feel compassion. He moved up the side of the rubble and began digging around the debris with his bare hands. Larger blocks prevented him from going very deep into the pile, yet he did not yield, even squeezing into precariously tight and unstable crevices. He used his burned left hand little, and soon his right hand was bleeding from scraping. 
but he continued on, moving first around the pile, then scaling higher. He was rewarded for his persistence for his emotions. When he reached the top of the ruins, he felt a familiar aura of magic power. It guided him to a small crevice between two stones. He reached in tentatively, hoping to find the object intact, and pulled out the small feline figurine. His fingers trembled as he examined it for damage, but found none. The magic within the object had resisted the weight. The drow's feeling at the find were mixed, however. Though he was relieved that Gwenhyver had apparently survived, the presence of the figurine told him that Regis had probably not escaped to the field. His heart sank, and sank even further when a sparkle from within the crevice caught his eye. He reached in and pulled out the golden chain with the ruby pendant, and his fears were confirmed. A fitting tomb for you, brave little friend. He said somberly, and he decided at that moment to name the pile Regis's Carn. He could not understand, though, what had happened to separate the halfling from his necklace, for there was no blood or anything else on the chain to indicate that Regis had been wearing it when he died. Gwenhyver, he called. Come to me, my shadow. He felt the familiar sensations in the figurine as he placed it on the ground before him. Then the black mist appeared and formed into the great cat, unharmed and somewhat restored by the few hours it had spent back on its own plane. Drizzt moved quickly toward his feline companion, but then he stopped as a second mist appeared a short distance away and began to solidify. Regis! The halfling sat with his eyes closed and his mouth opened wide, as though he was about to take an enjoyable and enormous bite of some unseen delicacy. One of his hands was clenched to the side of his eager jowls, and the other opened before him. As his mouth snapped shut on empty air, his eyes snapped open in surprise. Drizzt, he groaned. Really, you should ask before you steal me away. This perfectly marvelous cat had caught me the juiciest meal. Drizzt shook his head and smiled with a mixture of relief and disbelief. Oh, splendid, Regis cried. You have found my gemstone. I thought that I'd lost it. For some reason, it didn't make the journey with the cat and me. Drizzt handed the ruby back to him. The cat could take someone along on its travels through the plains. Drizzt resolved to explore this facet of Gwenhyver's power later. He stroked the cat's neck, then released it back to its own world where it could further recuperate. Come, Regis, he said grimly. Let us see where we might be of assistance. Regis shrugged resignedly and stood to follow the drow. When they crested the top of the ruins and saw the carnage spread out below them, the halfling realized the enormity of the destruction. His legs nearly faltered under him, but he managed, with some help from his agile friend, to make the descent. We won? he asked Drizzt, when they neared the level of the field, unsure if the people of Ten Towns had labeled what he saw before him victory or defeat. We survived, Drizzt corrected. A shout went up suddenly as the group of fishermen, seeing the two companions, rushed toward them, yelling with abandon. Wizard Slayer and Townbreaker, they cried. Drizzt, ever humble, lowered his eyes. Hail Regis, the men continued, the hero of Ten Towns. Drizzt turned a surprised but amused eye on his friend. Regis merely shrugged helplessly, acting as much the victim of the error as Drizzt. The men caught hold of the halfling and hoisted him to their shoulders. We shall carry you in glory to the council taking place within the city, one proclaimed. 
You, above all others, should have a say in the decisions that will be made. Almost as an afterthought, the man said to Drizzt, You can come too, Drow. Drizzt declined. All hail Regis, he said. A smile splayed across his face. Ah, little friend, ever have you the fortune to find gold in the mud where others wallow. He clapped the halfling on the back and stood aside as the procession began. Regis looked back over his shoulder and rolled his eyes as though he was merely going along for the ride. But Drizzt knew better. The drow's amusement was short-lived. Before he'd even moved away from the spot, two dwarves hailed him. "'It's good that we found you, friend elf,' said one. The drow knew at once that they bore grim news. "'Bruner?' he asked. The dwarves nodded. "'He lies near death. Even now he might be gone. He's asked for you.' Without another word, the dwarves led Drizzt across the field to a small tent they'd set up near the tunnel exits and escorted him in. Inside, candles flickered softly. Beyond the single cot, against the wall opposite the entrance, stood Wolfgar and Caterbury, their heads bent reverently. Bruner lay on the cot, his head and chest wrapped in blood-stained bandages. His breathing was raspy and shallow, as though each breath would be his last. Drizzt moved solemnly to his side, stoically determined to hold back the uncharacteristic tears that welled in his lavender eyes. Bruner would prefer strength. Is it the elf? Bruner gasped when he saw the dark form over him. I have come, dearest of friends, Drizzt replied. To see me on me way? Drizzt couldn't honestly answer so blunt a question. On your way? He forced a laugh from his constricting throat. <laughs> you have suffered worse. I'll hear no talk of dying. Who then would find Mithril Hall? Ah, me home. Bruner settled back at the name and seemed to relax, almost as if he felt his dreams would carry him through the dark journey before him. You're to come with me, then? Of course, Drizzt agreed. He looked to Wolfgar and Caterbury for support, but lost in their own grief, they kept their eyes averted. But not now. No, 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 not now, Bruner explained. Wouldn't do with the winter so close. <coughs> in the spring. Ah, in the spring. His voice trailed away and his eyes closed. Yes, my dear friend, Drizzt agreed. In the spring, I shall see you to your home in the spring. Bruner's eyes cracked open again, their deathly gaze washed over by a hint of the old sparkle. A contented smile widened across the dwarf's face, and Drizzt was happy that he'd been able to comfort his dying friend. The drow looked back to Wolfgar and Caterbury, and they, too, were smiling. At each other, Drizzt noted curiously. Suddenly, to Drizzt's surprise and horror, Bruner sat up and tore away the bandages. There! He roared to the amusement of the others in the tent. You said it, and I've witnesses to the fact! Drizzt, after nearly falling over with the initial shock, scowled at Wolfgar. The barbarian and Caterbury fought hard to subdue their laughter. Wolfgar shrugged, and a chuckle escaped. Bruner said that he would cut me down to the height of a dwarf if I said a word. 
And so he would have, Catterbury added. The two of them made a hasty exit. I've a council in Brinchander, Wolfgar explained hastily. Outside the tent, their laughter erupted unheeded. Damn you, Brunner Battlehammer, the drow scowled. Then, unable to stop himself, he threw his arms around the barrel-shaped dwarf and hugged him. Ah, get it over with, Brunner groaned, accepting the embrace. But be quick, we've a lot of work to do through the winter. Spring will be here sooner than you think, and on the first warm day we leave for Mithril Hall. Wherever that might be, Drizzt laughed, too relieved to be angered by the trick. Oh, we'll make it, Trow, Brunner cried. We always do. Epilogue the people of Ten Towns and their barbarian allies found the winter following the battle a difficult one, but by pooling their talents and resources, they managed to survive. Many councils were held throughout these long months with Cassius, Jensen, Brent, and Kemp representing the people of Ten Towns, and Wolfgar and Revjak representing the barbarian tribes. The first order of business was to officially recognize and condone the alliance of the two peoples, though many on both sides were strongly opposed. Those cities left untouched by Akar Kessel's army were packed full of refugees during the brutal winter. Reconstruction began with the first signs of spring. When the region was well on its way to recovery, and after the barbarian expedition following Wolfgar's direction returned with the dragon's treasure, councils were held to divide the towns among the surviving people. Relations between the two peoples almost broke down several times and were held together only by the commanding presence of Wolfgar and the continued calm of Cassius. When all was finally settled, the barbarians were given the cities of Bremen and Kerkonig to rebuild, the homeless of Kerkonig were moved into the reconstructed city of Kerdinival, and the refugees of Bremen who did not wish to live among the tribesmen were offered homes in the newly built city of Targos. It was a difficult situation, where traditional enemies were forced to put aside their differences and live in close quarters. Though victorious in the battle, the people of the towns could not call themselves winners. Everyone had suffered tragic losses. No one had come out better for the fight. Well, except Regis. The opportunistic halfling was awarded the title of first citizen and the finest house in all of ten towns for his part in the battle. Cassius readily surrendered his palace to the Tower Breaker. Regis accepted the spokesman's offer and all the other numerous gifts that rolled in from every city, for though he hadn't truly earned the accolades awarded him, he justified his good fortune by considering himself a partner of the unassuming drow. And since Drizzt Arden wasn't about to come to Bryn Shander and collect the rewards, Regis figured that it was his duty to do so. This was the pampered lifestyle that the halfling had always desired. He truly enjoyed the excessive wealth and luxuries, though he would later learn that there was indeed a hefty price to be paid for fame. Drizzt and Brunner had spent the winter in preparation for their search for Mithril Hall. The drow intended to honor his word, though he had been tricked, because life hadn't changed for him after the battle. Although he was in truth the hero of the fight, he still found himself barely tolerated among the people of Ten Towns, and the barbarians, other than Wolfgar and Revjak, openly avoided him, mumbling warding prayers to their gods whenever they inadvertently crossed his path. But the drow accepted the shunning with his characteristic stoicism. The whispers in town say that you have given your voice at the council to Revjak, 
Caterbury said to Wolfgar on one of her many visits to Bryn Shander. Wolfgar nodded. He is older and wiser in many ways. Caterbury drew Wolfgar under the uncomfortable scrutiny of her dark eyes. She knew that there were other reasons for Wolfgar stepping down as king. You mean to go with them, she stated flatly. I owe it to the drow, was Wolfgar's only explanation as he turned away in no mood to argue with the fiery gal. Again, you parry the question, Caterbury laughed. You go to pay no debt. You go because you choose the road. What could you know of the road? Wolfgar growled, pulled in by the girl's painfully accurate observation. What could you know of adventure? Caterbury's eyes sparkled disarmingly. I know, she stated flatly. Every day, in every place, is an adventure. This you have not yet learned. And so you chase down the distant roads, hoping to satisfy the hunger for excitement that burns in your heart. So go, Wolfgar of Icewind Dale. Follow your heart's trail and be happy. Perhaps when you return, you will understand the excitement of simply being alive. She kissed him on the cheek and skipped to the door. Wolfgar called after her, pleasantly surprised by her kiss. Perhaps then our discussions will be more agreeable. But not as interesting, was her parting response. One fine morning in early spring, the time finally came for Drizzt and Bruner to leave. Caterbury helped them pack their overstuffed sacks. When we've cleared the place, I'll take you there, Bruner told the girl one more time. Sure your eyes will shine when you see the rivers running silver in Mithril Hall. Caterbury smiled indulgently. You're sure you'll be all right then? Bruner asked more seriously. He knew that she would, but his heart flooded with fatherly concern. Caterbury's smile widened. They'd been through this discussion a hundred times over the winter. Caterbury was glad the dwarf was going, though she knew she would miss him dearly, for it was clear that Bruner would never truly be contented until he had at least tried to find his ancestral home. As she knew, better than anyone, that the dwarf would be in fine company. Bruner was satisfied. The time had come to go. The companions said their goodbyes to the dwarves and started off for Bryn Shander to bid farewell to their two closest friends. They arrived at Regis's house later in the morning and found Wolfgar sitting on the steps waiting for them, Aegis Fang and his pack by his side. Drizzt eyed the barbarians' belongings suspiciously as they approached, half-guessing Wolfgar's intentions. "'Well met, King Wolfgar,' he said. "'Are you off to Bremen or perhaps Kerr Koenig to oversee the work of your people?' Wolfgar shook his head. I am no king, he replied. Counsels and speeches are better left to older men. I have had more of them than I care to tolerate. Rev Jack speaks for the men of the tundra now. Then what are yourself? asked Brunner. I go with you, Wolfgar replied, to repay my last debt. Bah, you owe me nothing, Brunner declared. To you I am paid, Wolfgar agreed, and I have paid all that I owe to Ten Towns, and to my people as well. But there is one debt I am not free of. He turned to face Driz squarely. To you, friend elf. 
Driz didn't know how to reply. He clapped the huge man on the shoulder and smiled warmly. Come with us, Rumblebelly, Brunner said after they'd finished an excellent lunch in the palace. Four adventurers out on the open plain. It'll do you some good and take a bit of that belly of yours away. Regis grasped his ample stomach in both hands and jiggled it. I like my belly and intend to keep it, thank you. I may even add some more to it. I cannot begin to understand why you all insist on going on this quest anyway, he said more seriously. He'd spent many hours during the winter trying to talk Bruner and Drizzt out of their chosen path. We have an easy life here. Why would you want to leave? There is more to living than fine food and soft pillows, little friend, said Wolfgar. The lust of adventure burns our blood. With peace in the region, ten towns cannot offer the thrill of danger or the satisfaction of victory. Drizzt and Brunner nodded their assent, though Regis shook his head. And you call this pitiful place wealth? Brunner chuckled, snapping his stubby fingers. When I return from Mithril Hall, I'll build you a home twice this size and edged in gems like you never seen afore. But Regis was determined that he had witnessed his last adventure. After the meal was finished, he accompanied his friends to the door. If you make it back, your house shall be our first stop, Drizzt assured him. They met Kemp of Targos when they walked outside. He was standing across the road from Regis's front step, apparently looking for them. He's waiting for me, Wolfgar explained, smiling at the notion that Kemp would go out of his way to be rid of him. Farewell, good spokesman, Wolfgar called, bowing low. Prain de Kraybog omreindir biogurt iglokas gron. Kemp flashed an obscene gesture at the barbarian and stalked away. Regis nearly doubled over with laughter. Drizzt recognized the words, but was puzzled as to why Wolfgar had spoken in the Kemp. You once told me that those words were an old tundra battle cry, he remarked to the barbarian. Why would you offer them to the man that you despise? Wolfgar stammered over an explanation that would get him out of this jam, but Regis answered for him. Battle cry? The halfling exclaimed. That's an old barbarian housemother's curse, usually reserved for adulterous old barbarian housefathers. The drow's lavender eyes narrowed on the barbarian as Regis continued. It means, may the fleas of a thousand reindeer nest in your genitals. Bruno broke down into laughter, Wolfgar soon joining him. Driz couldn't help but go along. Come, this day is long, the drow said. Let us begin this adventure. It should prove interesting. Where will you go? Regis asked somberly. A small part of the halfling actually envied his friends. He had to admit that he would miss them. To Bremen first, replied Drizzt. We shall complete our provisions there and strike out to the southwest. Luskin? Perhaps, if the fates deem it. Good speed, Regis offered, as the three companions started out without further delay. Regis watched them disappear, wondering how he had ever picked such foolish friends. He shrugged it away and turned back to his palace. There was plenty of food left over from lunch. He was stopped before he got through the door. First citizen, came a call from the street. 
the voice belonged to a warehouse man from the southern section of the city, where the merchant caravans loaded and unloaded. Regis waited for his approach. A man, first citizen, the warehouseman said, bowing apologetically for disturbing so important a person. Asking about you. He, he claims to be a representative from Hero Society in Luskin, sent to request your presence at the next meeting. He said he would pay you well. His name? Uh, he gave none. Just this. The warehouseman opened a small pouch of gold. It was all that Regis needed to see. He left it once for the rendezvous with the man from Luskin. Once again, sheer luck saved the halfling's life, for he saw the stranger before the stranger saw him. He recognized the man at once, though he hadn't seen him in years, by the emerald-encrusted dagger hill protruding from the sheath on his hip. Regis had often contemplated stealing that beautiful weapon, but even he had a limit to his foolhardiness. The dagger belonged to Artemis Entreri, Pasha Pook's prime assassin. The three companions left Bremen before dawn the next day. Anxious to begin the journey, they made good time and were far out into the tundra when the first rays of the sun peeked over the eastern horizon behind them. Still, Bruno was not surprised when he noticed Regis scrambling across the empty plain to catch up with them. Got himself into trouble again, or I'm a bearded gnome, the dwarf snickered to Wolfgar and Drizzt. Well met, said Drizzt. But haven't we already said our farewells? I decided that I could not let Bruna run off into trouble without me being there to pull him out, Regis puffed, trying to catch his breath. You're coming? groaned Bruna. You've brought no supplies, fool halfling. I don't eat much, Regis pleaded, an edge of desperation creeping into his voice. Bah, you eat more than the three of us together, but no mind. We'll let you tag along anyway. The halfling's face brightened visibly, and Driz suspected that the dwarf's guess about trouble wasn't far off the mark. The four of us, then, proclaimed Wolfgar. One to represent each of the four common races, Bruner for the dwarves, Regis for the halflings, Driz Duarden for the elves, and myself for the humans. A fitting troop. I hardly think the elves would choose a drow to represent them, Drizzt remarked. Bruner snorted. You think the halflings would choose Rumblebelly for their champion? You're crazy, dwarf, retorted Regis. Bruner dropped his shield to the ground, leaped around Wolfgar, and squared off before Regis. His face contorted in mock rage as he grasped Regis by the shoulders and hoisted him into the air. That's right, Rumblebelly, Bruner cried wildly. Crazy I am, and never cross one that's crazier than yourself. Drizzt and Wolfgar looked at each other with knowing smiles. It was indeed going to be an interesting adventure. And with the rising sun at their backs, their shadows standing long before them, they started off on their way to find Mithril Hall. And that concludes the Crystal Shard. Thank you all for listening. The journey's not over, though. Very soon, the journey will continue with Book 2 of the Icewind Dale trilogy, Streams of Silver. Thank you again, and safe travels.